Nothing with the tea, you fucking drink, sir! Drink the chocolate around your dead fucking body, you fuck! Would you get him out of here? Hey, wait a second! He jumped me! You fucking tracer! Your mother's a tracer! Hello, and welcome to the When We Were Young podcast, where we revisit the pop culture hits of our youth, roughly 1980 to 2000, and see how they hold up now that we're fossilized. (laughs) I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to haggle over the price of a French dip. I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to be resurrected and impregnated by Alanis Morissette. And I'm Becky. I'm the podcast host that's not even supposed to be here today. That was almost my intro. We had to have a little discussion about it. and It's mine. Not even supposed to be here today. I just had to say it. Seth? I, I feel like Becky's was better. <laughs> no offense, Chris. I think mine was perfect. You tried, buddy. Well, it's not the last time I'm going to say that during this podcast. You are very clearly supposed to be here today. I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> not even supposed to be here today. I hope you've deduced by now, but today on the When We Were Young podcast, we're going to be talking about Chasing Amy, the third feature film by the writer-director Kevin Smith. And we're also going to hit on his past in filmmaking and how this fits into the overall catalog of Kevin Smith's films. Not even supposed to be here today. (laughs) So we'll just start with some basic words about Kevin Smith's personal history. He was born on August 2nd, 1970 in Red Bank, New Jersey. Wait, he's from New Jersey? I had no idea. It's difficult to deduce it from his (laughs) films. He really likes to hide that fact. Yeah. But he was the kid of two working class folks. He has a couple siblings. Growing up, he loved the movies, uh, especially Star Wars and Batman. Again, things that you would never know from watching his movies. (laughs) Or uh, his daughter's name. Harley Quinn. Yeah. (laughs) What? Huh? On his 21st birthday, he saw Richard Linklater's film Slacker, which was filmed like so many of Linklater's movies in Austin, Texas. And that movie opened up for Kevin Smith the idea that he himself could make movies. So he scraped together money from like 12 credit cards, just over 24,000 bucks, and made the film Clerks in his hometown in New Jersey, using mostly actors who were his friends and neighbors. And he worked at that convenience store, correct? Yes, he he filmed it at the convenience store that he was working at at the time. And there was a kind of a brief period where he went to film school, first in New York and then up in Canada, where he met his producer, Scott Mosher. He kind of left both of those once he realized that he could find the tools that he would need to make a movie himself without having to go through the additional expense of getting a film degree. I was wondering where he got the idea for Clerks, because it's such an original premise that, (laughs) you know, the fact that he actually was a clerk actually makes a lot of sense, I think. (laughs) I'm being a little sarcastic. Seth is glaring at me. I get the feeling that you're not even supposed to be here today. (laughs) I'm really not. I wanted to kind of wrap the history of Kevin Smith into our individual experiences with his movies. And that'll be our opening question for this episode. When was the first time you saw a Kevin Smith movie and did you watch them growing up? Yeah, so I definitely watched Clerks. Um, What year did Clerks come out? 94. 94. So I think I saw it. I definitely didn't see it in theaters, but around that time, like it was really cool to like Clerks and it was this indie movie and it was, it was different than everything else that was in theaters. It was around the time that Clerks came out. I remember people talking about, you know, you have to see this movie. It was about people that I kind of knew in real life. 
like even though I was slightly younger, they spoke how our my friends spoke and you know talked about pop culture and movies. And we didn't see that a lot in movies at the time about people actually talking about pop culture. You were fairly close to New Jersey as well. <laughs> but he's from Long Island. So. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But. No, it's a similar culture. <laughs> like I don't. Clerks doesn't remind me of anywhere that I'm... All right. These are close to your people, I mean, Becky. in the fact that they talked about movies, and me and my friends talked about movies. And usually mm-hmm. when I went to go see a movie, the people in the movie were talking about more important <laughs> things than Star Wars and, you know, comic books and stuff like that. Um, so when I was 17, I went to a film camp. Um, it was Northwestern's uh, summer program for high schoolers. And, you know, we uh, shot on film. We shot on digital and you know, wrote stories and screenplays. um, Because by that point in my life, I already knew this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I remember every single original screenplay that came out of there from these 17-year-old kids sounded between a cross between Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino. Like, Mm -hmm. those were the two largest influences from these 16 and 17-year-olds at the time. And this was around the year 2000. Mm -hmm. So Kevin Smith, I remember, was like a pretty big thing. yeah, I would, I would definitely say that in light of Clerks and, and his other movies, like he and Quentin Tarantino kind of came to define 90s independent cinema. Definitely. And I think the talking about pop culture and using it in your stories, I think, has a lot to do with that. I remember liking Clerks, but I really, really liked Chasing Amy. And that was a huge movie for me as a teenager. <laughs> I kind of went through a similar thing. <laughs> Where I was like in love with this gay guy. Uh, hi, Justin. That's <laughs> my friend Justin. <laughs> Shout out to Justin. Um, still friends today. And it ended the exact same way as Chasing Amy, right? <laughs> um, yes, he came out after we uh, stopped dating the month we were dating <laughs> when I was 15 years old. Um, what a month. Yeah, it was It was quite a month. Um, and I remember watching this movie and crying. <laughs> I loved Chasing Amy. Probably it had a lot to do with what I was going through at the time, but I remember being really delighted with it. I thought it was really funny. I thought the romantic parts were very romantic. Like, it was something that I really, really liked. I knew every word to it. It was a really big movie for me back then. Not so much the other Kevin Smith movies, but I think I always said I was a fan because of that movie. Awesome. Chris? Unlike Becky, I did not see a whole lot of independent cinema (laughs) in the 90s. Um, And so I missed Clerks. I was probably vaguely aware of it, but I didn't see any Kevin Smith movies until Dogma, which I think I didn't even see until video. I might have seen it in the theaters, but um, I listed Dogma as one of my favorite movies back then. I remember starting at USC, Dogma came out in 99, so it was a couple years after that. And, you know, I had a list of maybe five movies that were my favorite movies. And it was like Fight Club and Magnolia and American Beauty. All of those are from 1999. Um, And and Dogma was one of those movies. So uh, I was a big fan of that movie. It took me a while to catch up with anything else that he made. I know I saw Chasing Amy around the time I started college, um, but I didn't... I only saw it once, so I had only seen it, you know, 15 years ago or maybe even slightly longer. And I saw Clerks, I believe it was my freshman year at USC, <laughs> at the um, Grand 
UV cinemas across from oh. campus. The, do- the Dollar Village. Theater or whatever it is. Yeah, it, it is now a gorgeous palace <laughs> worthy of Hogwarts, but back when we went there, it was a little janky. <laughs> little? Yeah. There were bullet holes in the screens. <laughs> there were. Some of the best features of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I saw Clerks and I remember seeing it with uh, our friend Allison and she and I just afterwards just kept going, I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> so uh, that's what I remember the most about Clerks. That's the only thing I really remembered about it when I settled into watching. We're repeating again. that line over and over in this podcast as an homage to Clerks. <laughs> yeah, I think we still haven't hit as many times as it's repeated in the movie. Yeah. Not even supposed to be here today. Not even supposed to be here today. I'm not even supposed to be here today! Oh, fuck you! Um, but I had not seen very many Kevin Smith movies. Um, besides, I never saw Mallrats, and I didn't... I think I saw Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back when it came out, but I hadn't seen any of them recently, and I fell off of watching his movies quite some time ago. The last one I saw was Red State when that came out, so... Um, I was a casual fan of Kevin Smith, but had not revisited him. I hadn't even revisited Dogma in a long time. Cool. Well, my personal history, my Smithstery, if you will, Kevin Smith and Tarantino were both introduced to me roughly at the same time. You met them both yeah. at the same time? Yeah, in my elementary school. <laughs> they both came by one day. They signed a napkin, and now you have that napkin frame? <laughs> yep. Call back to our Seinfeld episode. <laughs> Episode four. Listen now. Sign facts. I mean, don't turn this off and listen to it, but listen to it after this one. this episode fully. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes based on this episode. Then go back and revisit Seinfeld. Got all that? Thanks. You can go to the bathroom in between if you'd like. Or during, even. What do we care? Have a light snack. You know, it's up to you. But, you know. Call your mom. She misses you. No, you can't listen to a podcast while you're calling your mom. Cut off all contact with your friends and family. <laughs> listen to only this podcast. If you Eat call your, your mom, tell her to listen to the When We Are Young podcast, though. You guys, we're just trying to help you live your best lives. But just to kind of orient everyone, Clerks, Kevin Smith's first movie came out in 94, Mallrats was 95, and Chasing Amy was 97, Dogma, 1999. I was introduced to roughly all of these movies at around the same time in high school. I had friends who lived near the high school I went to, which was in Uptown, New Orleans, whereas I lived oh. on... Uh, yeah, it's it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, I lived on the other bank of the Mississippi River, the West... It's called the West Bank, but it's actually the South Bank, technically. Huh. That's where a lot of the white flight suburbs of New Orleans are. I would go to some friends' houses who lived near my high school after school, and we'd just hang out and often watched a lot of movies. And that's where I watched a lot of the kinds of movies that I wouldn't have been allowed to watch growing up. Uh, and when I was in elementary school, you know, and when my only access to videos was like, what was that? my parents' house, you know, like what my parents would buy for me or what would be on cable or whatever. Yeah, I believe Becky's parents were equally strict with her <laughs> viewing habits. I laugh at that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there was also a point when my dad would help me watch R-rated movies on cable, but that was later. So, Like help you as in like hold your eyes open? Or? <laughs> no, distract my mom. Okay. <laughs> you know, what good dads do. I believe I watched Clerks and Mallrats back to back. And because there are recurring characters throughout a lot of these movies... Oh, really? are there? I hadn't oh, noticed. What? Huh? Were there? 
Um, namely Jay and Silent Bob, but a lot of the other kind of main characters recur in kind of smaller and larger roles. I'm pretty certain I watched Clerks and Mallrats back to back. And then I didn't watch Chasing Amy until later, but I watched it at the same friends' houses, basically. And really, really, really liked it from the start. I loved the dialogue. I thought it was hilarious. And when I first watched Chasing Amy, I, I wasn't fully aware of my own sexuality yet, and I thought I was bisexual. But it was a movie that represented uncomfortableness and fluidity in sexuality and the anguish that can kind of come with that in a way that I'd never, ever seen in a movie before. So I really appreciated that a movie like that existed and hadn't really rewatched it until late last year. Still really liked it, but I mean, like, obviously I'd seen pretty much all the rest of Kevin Smith's movies in the interim. And, I mean, like, there there are definite misses, but I've liked a lot of his movies and have been a fan of, like, his comedic voice for a long time. So was Chasing Amy your favorite of his movies at that time? Yes, definitely. It was, yeah, it was pretty much always my favorite. It was my favorite at the time, too, by a long shot. Yeah, so mine was Dogma. Uh, I hadn't seen Chasing Amy as a teenager, though, but... Um, I remember, yeah, that I appreciated it when I saw it. Now that we've given our own Kevin Smith histories, let's talk about Clerks and its enduring influence in pop culture and in popular cinema. Yes, let's. (laughs) (laughs) So as Seth mentioned, it was made on a very, very small budget for a movie um, in the $20,000 range. Um, And then it had uh, $230,000 of post-production costs. So it still was well under a million by the time it was released. But that was when, did Miramax foot the bill for that? I'm sure it did. Yeah, I'm sure that wasn't Kevin Smith. Yes, it got programmed in Sundance and Harvey Weinstein bought it at Sundance. Uh, Like invited him to dinner and like (laughs) offered him. So it made $3.2 million. So it was a hit based on um, how how much it cost. And it was released October 19th, 1994. And it was pretty well reviewed. It was definitely, it stood out, I think, amongst the indie movies of the time. Like Becky kind of was saying earlier, it um, it felt different. It was, it definitely, it, I think it was a real novelty to, um, to see a movie made so cheaply. There, was, there mm-hmm. were a couple of movies that were also shot kind of cheaply, like Spike Lee's first movie. Um, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yeah. Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, that was something that you continue to see. And like we talked about The Blair Witch in our second episode. And it probably inspired, you know, those filmmakers in a way to to have a movie that, like The Blair Witch, like felt very natural. And it was just, you know, people people talking and being hunted by witches. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Clerks was even more different just because they didn't try to stretch the budget to seem like there's no car chases. There's no special effects there's no like action pieces it's really just people hanging around talking to one another yeah and it was also groundbreaking in the sense that it was uh extremely profane in the dialogue um yeah it was yeah. originally rated nc-17 i don't know if you saw that but isn't that crazy i did well not only was it originally rated nc-17 uh harvey weinstein and miramax sued the motion picture association of america and used alan dershowitz as their attorney uh, and sought to get the rating changed, and Good. eventually they forced it. Good. Um, and it's uh, I, I again, I see as part of Clerks' impact that it kind of laid the groundwork for 
movies not being rated NC-17 on the basis of just language alone. What do you, do you think it was just like the blowjob conversation or? Uh, yeah, I think it was probably the graphic depict or graphic talking about sexuality because I mean, bad language doesn't usually get that kind of thing, but the MPAA is very prudish about yeah. sexual material, especially um, anything involving like women, like and women's, women's pleasure, women's pleasure. Yeah, yes, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that's I'm glad you brought that up. I was like, because it's it's really a thing, and it's really been like a practice that of theirs for so long mm-hmm. that like any depiction of women being sexually pleased, much less talking about it. It's kind of like an automatic hard R and C seventeen. And even though this movie is pretty male centric, it does explore a couple women's sexuality pretty in depth. Yeah, you know, they they talk a lot about their sexual history, mm-hmm. uh, and in a completely unashamed way. Yes, although let's talk about thirty seven dicks <laughs> in a row. Yeah, <laughs> working on my day off. The goddamn steel shutters are closed. I deal with every backward-ass fuck on the planet. I smell like shoe polish. My ex-girlfriend is catatonic after fucking a dead guy. And my present girlfriend has sucked 36 dicks. 37. We'll get into this, I think, more in Chasing Amy as well. But it's interesting. Like, I think Kevin Smith does consider the female point of view. Like, the women in this movie are not there just to be props. But you can still... I don't know if it was this way at the time, but I feel like you can still tell that this is coming from a straight guy's perspective rather than a female's perspective. Definitely. Yeah. A a young straight guy who clearly has not lived that much of a life. Outside of a convenience store. Outside of, you know, outside of his little group. I mean, it's between here and Chasing Amy, it's obviously Kevin Smith trying to figure some shit out. Yeah, again, we'll get into that more with Chasing Amy, but there is a real insecurity with women's sexuality. In Clerks, the main character gets upset that his girlfriend has sucked 37 dicks. She, He's upset because she said she only slept with like two or three guys, something like that, like a low low number. Mm-hmm. Um, and But she has sucked and 37. And out that she yeah. sucked 37. And so he first feels, you know, that she's a slut, but also a liar, because that should have counted as sex and or like he didn't care that she only slept with three guys but she re- he really cares that she was involved in that kind of intimacy with other guys mm-hmm. and that large amount of guys large to him yeah so it's interesting that like this is a theme that kind of runs deep for him but that he is like i think that that character is definitely a proxy for kevin smith i mean he, he even looks a lot like kevin smith he basically casts his doc doc doppelganger um he initially was going to be kevin smith uh that makes a lot of sense do you know why he didn't end up it was i think it was more a practicality issue of just not being able to direct everything and keep track of the script and that makes a lot of sense yeah everyone everyone knows he's silent bob right right (laughs) is that a thing we have to spell out on the podcast (laughs) well and like that was in part also because he realized he wasn't like a trained actor and he probably couldn't carry it. Well, Are any of them trained actors? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone in this movie really comes across as super polished thespian. I, I heard Fair. that, um, I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard that he cast himself as Silent Bob because he didn't know if he'd ever make another movie and he wanted to sh- show that he's in it. <laughs> like He's like, this might be the only movie I ever make. I want to be in it. So he cast himself with only one line. And that line was supposed to be Jason Mew's line, but he just 
took it anyway. I believe it. Yeah. I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I would be surprised if some version of that 37 Dick story did not happen to Kevin Smith. I mean, I'm sure that that's comedically exaggerated, but I strongly believe that this is an insecurity that he had within himself that he was then exploring. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, it's all, like a, a male sexual insecurity is like a running thread through all his movies mm-hmm. uh, in one form or another and addressed from different perspectives as he goes along in his career. Um, but yeah, it's definitely like the work of a uh, an immature person, and then, like he admits as such. But yeah, I think that he at least at least he recognizes. I think more so in Chasing Amy than Clerks that he's an idiot. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, I think I think in Chasing Amy, it's like a total self indictment. But I think it's coming from a place where he's like, I'm probably wrong, but this is this is the inse- insecurity that I'm feeling. But I'm an idiot and I'm wrong. Yeah, right. he definitely. You aren't supposed to think that the character is right in being upset about this. Like, exactly. It's clear that he's kind of judging him, but it's also clear that Kevin Smith does actually partially feel this way as well. That, mm-hmm. it, that he's, he's right. not totally condemning it. He's saying, like, this is how I feel, and it's probably wrong, but I do feel this way. And it, it's an, and, and interesting. And I think that's part of what the kind of mass appeal of the movie was, is the sense that, like, it's it is these are very specific characters uh, in a very specific bubble within the larger world that they're not necessarily aware of, but the kind of emotional situations that they have and the insecurities and anxieties and joys and all of that are kind of universal. Mm-hmm. So Becky, I kind of want to ask you what you think about the female, like did what did you think about them then and what do you think about the female characters now? Do you think they're... Do you mean in all Kevin Smith movies? No, just or this one. Just like, in Clerks? There's, there's the, the girlfriend that we've been talking about and then there's the ex-girlfriend who accidentally has sex with a corpse. <laughs> they're We've not all the been gra- there. I mean, they're not the greatest depictions of women, but I don't think the men are the greatest depictions of men yeah. <laughs> either. Men are a lot more complicated in real life than they are in Kevin Smith movies. So, I mean, it's Kevin a little... Kevin Smith may not be more complicated, <laughs> but... Right. I mean, I, it didn't bother me so much. Um, be, I mean, the acting's not great, <laughs> so that also doesn't help. Um, you know, create depth for a character. But mm. um, it didn't bother me so much because I think that you're supposed to know that this character is an, is kind of a moron. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so you're, we're not supposed to side with him and be like, yeah, what a slut. Um, right. It was a little disconcerting. And I wish that, you know, if this movie were made today or rewritten today, like you'd maybe finesse that a little bit better. But I'm sure it didn't really bother would. me. Like, I'm sure he would approach it very differently now. Right. So it doesn't really bother me that much. Yeah, I kind of had a problem with the other girl, the one who has sex with a dead man, just because it's played off as such a joke. And like the trauma that this woman must feel like is not considered <laughs> at all. It's basically just like, uh-huh. Doesn't that suck for you that your ex-girlfriend oh, yeah. had sex with a dead guy? And the movie is really more concerned with how women's sexuality inconveniences the men, like Dante. Like, the women are well-written characters, but they're not fully considered. I feel I feel like it's really more concerned with how this, how the guys react to their sexuality than but fully I don't, considering But them. I don't think you can divide their... Re- the men's reactions in this movie from the fact that they lead such pointless fucking lives that like this is the only kind of shit they are able to concern themselves with. 
Mm-hmm. Like that's part of why it works is that it so like taps into how mundane working class and especially like poor folks who have to work shitty jobs where they never get paid enough and also don't have anything meaningful that they feel like they get to contribute. But aside from that, I think what Becky said earlier is right too, where it's like it it doesn't lionize any of these men for how stupid and shallow and selfish they are. Mm-hmm. And it also doesn't make it like women's fault that they're that way. Yeah. The movie also is kind of like a weird attitude about the fiance, just because they call out that he's Asian a lot. And it feels a little like it reminded me a little of John Hughes in the way that it kind of looks at women and minorities. Uh, Hmm. It just, it felt like something that probably wouldn't happen today, but it, again, just kind of like... It's very rough around the edges. Yeah. It it wants to be offensive in a way. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe that contributes to that. It's it's just, again, like, it, it seems very mired in, like, straight white male identity. I mean, it was over 20 years ago, but it's a little bit hard to take 20 years ago is a really long time. Yeah. And, like, we'll get into this more in Chasing Amy, but the use of language and terms that now are, like, considered politically incorrect and unspeakable in polite company was not at all as scrutinized or inherently inflammatory Mm -hmm. then as it is now. I compared this a little bit to Seinfeld just because it has a similar look at white people problems. And this is a movie about nothing, just like that was a show about nothing. And so I I think that Seinfeld managed to do a lot of this a little bit better, which is not surprising because Seinfeld is one of the best TV shows (laughs) ever ever created. (laughs) Like very talky, very like no action. As far as like clerks holding up, I actually was surprised that I felt like most of it did hold up. And I think there were problematic parts or jokes that didn't land, you know, kind of bad filmmaking in some parts. But on the whole, like maybe like every other scene, I like actually legitimately laughed or like that 37 (laughs) dicks in a row line. Like it's hilarious still. Yeah. Um, So I was actually surprised how much it did hold up. Mm. And I, I feel like this would be a really great movie that my friends in like film school would make. And I'd be like, can't wait to see what they do with real money. Right. Yeah, Yeah, no, and I I rewatched, the last time I rewatched Clerks was last year when I rewatched Chasing Amy. And I agreed with that. Like that, I totally came away with it. Like most of this movie still lands. Obviously the cinematography and all of that is very rough around the edges to be kind. Um, (laughs) But Kevin Smith uses far less glowing terms than that to describe his own (laughs) cinematography and his own framing and the way he fills a frame and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So he, I think he's aware of that kind of, gap as well but um but yeah i i still found it very charming yeah i more or less agree i mean i watched a lot of kevin smith altogether so i think some of it was a bit much uh i think when you take him in a (laughs) condensed setting like that yeah it can you can it's a little bit too much of similar things sometimes but um yeah overall i would say like this movie on its own Holds up as an interesting kind of landmark of independent cinema. And it was really influential. Yeah. So I think we have to give it credit that he was doing something pretty unique at the time. And it inspired a lot of filmmakers. I believe it was Jason Reitman. I read a Kevin Smith interview. He said that Jason Reitman told Kevin Smith that 
he watched Clerks and was inspired to become a director. And he's like, you're Ivan Reitman's son and I inspired you to become a director. <laughs> that is kind of crazy. <laughs> but I think that he did. And, and especially speaking to young people when, you know, uh, personal uh, cameras uh, video cameras were starting to become a thing in, in homes that you could make your own movie. Um, I, th- I, I mean, think he's that, not only yeah. evangelical about it, like he wrote a whole book about it, uh, mm-hmm. about kind of, you know, like finding and chasing whimsy in your life. And if there's a creative it's chasing thing, whimsy, the sequel to chasing Amy, <laughs> it is, it is. We'll talk about chasing whimsy later. <laughs> he really did kind of influence a whole generation of filmmakers. And not just independent, quote unquote, filmmaking, but like very mainstream as well. Like, yes. again, yeah, he's just very much influenced yeah. the comedic tone and especially the turn toward, you know, like with the Farrelly brothers and Apatow, I Apatow yeah. and Ben Stiller and so many of the kind of more profane side of big broad comedy was influenced by the fearlessness and vulgarity of the viewist universe, as it's called. Yeah, and I feel like to what degree this movie doesn't hold up is because of what he influenced. Like, for oh, example, I totally agree with that. The Star Wars banter, I'm sure, was like really funny and fresh at the time. And now we've seen so many movies that mm-hmm. have like Star Wars banter in it that it's like, if I never hear that again, <laughs> I'll be totally fine. But, you know, you can't fault him for 20 years after. So that'll take us into Chasing Amy. Um, So this movie starts in a comic book convention, and I really was like, is this the first time I've ever seen a a comic book convention in a movie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was kind of surprising because you see a lot of nerd culture in movies now, and I think that he really, you know, inspired nerds to be proud to be nerds, talking about Star Wars and comic books and, like, that kind of geekdom uh, I've never seen that in a movie before Chasing Amy, and now it's huge. So it's really groundbreaking. Yeah, I had totally forgotten that uh, Chasing Amy had anything to do with comic books because I saw it so long ago. And after watching, I watched Clerks and Clerks 2 and then Dogma. And so then I was um, kind of like, yes, I finally get an adult movie that doesn't have to do with those like <laughs> silly comic book kind of things. <laughs> And then I was. It opened at Comic Con, and I was like, "Ah, shit! <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even supposed to be here." <laughs> Chasing Amy was his third feature film. His second movie, Mallrats, was made with a considerably larger budget, but for a lot of reasons, it was a kind of critical and box office flop. It has since become kind of a cult hit and really kind of launched the idea of the Askewniverse, which is like this version of New Jersey where all of these characters live, but it was not regarded as one of his more successful films. So for Chasing Amy, he had a much smaller budget of $250,000. It was released uh, on April 4th, 1997, and the box office was $12 million. $12 million. So yeah, on a $250,000 budget, that's quite a success. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also one of those movies that became a lot more widely known uh, once it hit video and then later DVD. Yeah, $12 million is even pretty good for a, a movie like that today. Yeah, movie. yeah, especially given inflation. I am not going to do the math, but <laughs> I imagine it's a larger number. Yes. Let's talk about the critical reception to Chasing Amy. So the reviews were mostly positive, but it was also fairly polarizing. So, for example, the Los Angeles Times gave it a perfect score. Uh, Kevin Thomas said, 
A little movie with big truths, a work of such fierce intelligence and emotional honesty that it blows away the competition when it comes to contemporary romantic comedy. Whereas the Washington Post gave it a zero. (laughs) So, like, the range of reviews was perfect to zero. But uh, their review says... (laughs) It's a little bit mean. Uh, Whatever Miramax was hoping for when it decided to bankroll films by Kevin Smith, it surely wasn't Chasing Amy, the awful third installment of his Two Guys Hanging Out trilogy, begun with the overpraised Clerks and followed by the ludicrously bad Mallrats. The words written and directed by Kevin Smith are now an instruction to run very fast out of the theater. Oh, my. Do not pay money to see this movie. Do not rent it when it comes out on video. Whoa. Wow. That's hilarious. I mean, it's it's... From from what I found, it's kind of more widely praised than that. Um, not quite as hated. Yes. Yeah, most of the reviews were more toward the positive end, for sure. Yeah, and I found uh, Roger Ebert's review gave it three and a half out of four stars. And he said, This could be the setup for an empty-headed sex com, but Smith is more ambitious and subtle. While the surface of his film sparkles with sharp, ironic dialogue, deeper issues are forming, and Chasing Amy develops into a film of touching insights. Most romantic comedies place phony obstacles in the way of true love, but Smith knows that at some level, there's nothing funny about being in love. It's a dead serious business in which your entire being is at risk. I miss Roger Ebert's writing. Um, I yeah, I miss it a lot. This review was like beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like tearing up right yeah. now. Um, <laughs> I know, I still go to any movie that came out, you know, more than a few years ago. I still look at his reviews first. Yeah, definitely. So when I first saw this movie, I felt like this was the first movie of his that actually had a real story and depth to the characters and had actual emotions behind it. I don't know how you guys felt. Yeah, I mean, that was exactly how I felt and even the first time I saw it. And I mean, in high school, I feel like, I mean, he has a reputation as being a very adolescent filmmaker in some Mm. ways or adolescent voice. Um, But at that period in my life, when I was introduced to his movies, this one was really packed an emotional wallop for me and really still does, kind of spoiling how it holds up for me now. Mm -hmm. Um, But the kind of idea of unrequited love or love that's not returned to you in the way that you expect it to come um, was a really big issue for me at the time in my life Um, and always, I mean, has been the source of much frustration, like I'm sure it is for everyone. Um, but it was a thing that I really was not expecting from a Kevin Smith movie. And my friends, like, who introduced me to the movie said at the time, like, well, I mean, this is a very different movie. And it struck me even the first time watching it. It's more mature, but it's also a much more probing, searching, unflinching kind of movie. Not every second is like that, but overall, it's a very emotionally effective story. This was one of my favorite movies growing up. I actually can't believe that I hadn't watched it in a very long time. Probably the last time I watched it was sometime in high school. I think that I never bought it on DVD. And when my VHSs, you know, went away, my capability to watching VHSs went away. I just went years without ever watching it again. So I try to watch it this time, you know, without it being in a time capsule of what it was then. I wanted to view it like, hey, if I just put this on today, like, how would I feel about it. And 
I'm kind of embarrassed about how much I liked it back in the day because I think most of it doesn't hold up. There are moments that do that are still funny or heartwarming, but I think that a lot of it just it was really cringeworthy for me. And so I, I think this is a good time to kind of spill out what the actual story of the movie mm-hmm. is. The movie star is Ben Affleck and Joey Lauren Adams and a whole shit ton of other people. <laughs> and also Jason Lee is the other lead character. And Ben Affleck and Jason Lee are kind of lifelong best friends who are comic artists. Ben Affleck's character falls in love with Joey Lauren Adams, who is a comic book artist herself and a lesbian. Twist, she's a lesbian. Twist, no, she's not. <laughs> wait, twist, wait, she is. <laughs> so, the, the film tells the story of these three characters trying to navigate in their own very selfish ways their feelings for each other that they are both willing and unwilling to deal with. Becky, I want to go into what you think of as the cringeworthy aspects of Chasing Amy. The most obvious is that the movie looks like it was edited on iMovie. (laughs) Uh, The lighting is abysmal. I mean, the direction is abysmal, too. The man, I mean, I have a lot of good things to say about Kevin Smith, but he does not have an eye for cinema. Like, it was... He has no sense of composition. I mean, you're he's not a good director. Like, I can give him credit for dialogue, but man, just... Even the acting, I'm like, I feel like there's a good actress in Joey Lauren Adams, but, like, she's just directed poorly, I felt like. I mean, I just can't get enough of how bad a director he is. (laughs) And just, yeah, the lighting is, I mean, I know this is a low-budget movie, but, oh, my God, like, some of the scenes are just completely in shadow. It's strange to me that he's now made so many movies, and it doesn't really feel like his visual style has developed very much. I mean, he did make something like Red State that looks a lot more sophisticated than Even Tusk. Yeah, like, just his movies aren't generally very pleasurable to look at. The direction, I think, is part of it, but even Dogma, which, you know, has more um, set pieces and some action scenes, actually, isn't... Like, there's still something that feels kind of awkward about the way that that is all shot in stage two, so... There's some awkward staging moments in that, too. Yeah. Um, totally. At the very least, I could see what the actors were doing in Dogma, <laughs> <laughs> which I can't say for every shot of Chasing Amy. <laughs> Yeah. So I am pretty much with Becky on this in that my feelings about Kevin Smith are actually, I feel, pretty complicated because it would be easy to write this movie off completely and just say it's homophobic because you could definitely make that argument for a lot of aspects of it. But I want to give him credit. For one, he made Clerks, which was about, you know, two straight white dudes hanging out, and it was very mired in his own point of view. And in this movie, he has a lesbian character and a gay black character, and he's trying to give these people a voice. They both have points of view that are not Kevin Smith's points of view. And so I see him trying to give voice to these people, but ultimately it still sounds like a straight white man trying to write like a lesbian or it's a, a movie gay for man. straight white men who are curious about gay people and lesbianism it's yeah. not for gay people no it's for people that are curious why? about this why because it's a lot of the movie is him asking her questions and like, like what is a lesbian <laughs> like it's it's like how do you have sex and i it's it is progressive because he wants to show hey you know, lesbians have sex too. And it's just, it's, it's, it's only for a straight audience who don't know 
And so they're watching this movie being like, yeah, how do lesbians it, have sex? Well, it kind of feels like a man, like that scene. And it goes on a long time where they're talking about what is fucking. Is it penetration? Is it not? We all know this now. And I feel like probably we know more about it than maybe the average moviegoer would even today. But in general, I think so much has just changed in how much representation there is of gay people that a lot of this just doesn't play anymore because it feels obvious. And that, I'm not saying at the time it didn't work because I think it worked at the time better than it does now because it seems offensive to have a movie filled with questions for gay people to just answer so white men can be more educated about that. I mean, we now have movies made by gay black men and by lesbians, and those people are telling their own stories that people have access to. So I, I know at the time it was kind of cool of him to maybe step outside his comfort zone and r represent some people who are underrepresented. But I mean, I don't want to conjecture about Kevin Smith's personal life, but I don't get the sense that he actually knew many gay people and like based these characters on those people. It just, or at least it just, it felt like a, a white straight guy trying to insert himself and tell someone else's story. And those stories don't feel authentic to me anymore. Seth. <laughs> Seth is nodding his head. Okay. And, uh, and crying. So I agree with pretty much everything Chris said. Thank you. I did feel like... <laughs> I felt like this movie at the time was very well-meaning, but right now it just comes off as offensive to gay people. But maybe, Seth, can you talk about that? Like, did, do you not feel kind of offended? I have the complete opposite position to both of your opinions about this. All right. <laughs> um, thank you for asking. <laughs> but I also totally anticipated that you may feel this way. Well, we did drop some hints, I think. <laughs> Leaving the note. I graffitied <laughs> Chasing Amy Sucks on Seth's apartment building. <laughs> that was you? I thought that was just a neighbor. I kind of anticipated how y'all felt about it. And also, I saw some reviews that uh, accused it of being homophobic back from when it was released. Mm -hmm. And I really think that view kind of misses the point. Ben Affleck's character is a typical doofus straight white male and is obviously kind of the proxy for Kevin Smith and the story that he's telling. Yeah. I mean, in that context, it's, it's not the perspective of a gay male, but it's not pretending to be. It's not a story that attempts to tell the story of all women or all lesbians. And I think it addresses sexual fluidity in a way that almost no film, especially any film in the mainstream, would be allowed to do now. I see Jason Lee's character as another kind of complicated character because he is very viscerally homophobic. And the reason why he's homophobic is that he has repressed gay feelings. He is in love with Ben Affleck's character. And it's very, very, very obvious I don't know. I didn't... I mean, I know that that's kind of the text of the movie, but it, something about the performance or the character or the combination of those, like, didn't convince me that he actually had those feelings. Yeah, I never... Yeah, I remember always being kind of confused at the end because I'm like, wait a minute, he's gay? Like, there's nothing that really built that up for me. I just felt like he was jealous that his best friend was leaving their best... He was finding a new best friend. So when the movie was, like... We should have a threesome and and um, what's Jason Lee's 
Banky. Banky. Uh, when he was basically Banks. When he was basically <laughs> saying, "Banky, you have feelings too. for me," and Banky was like, "Okay," like kind of admitting, "I do." Like I, and even this time, I was like, kind of surprised just because I didn't, I didn't get that with the character at all. Hmm. Yeah. Again, I mean, I find it that that Kevin Smith is sort of trying to tell a complicated story, but. <sighs> It's I'm, hard. It's really no, hard. It's, it's like, it's hard. I have so many thoughts about this movie that they are all just coming to me all at once. But um, so I keep wanting to call her Amy. That's not even her name. No. And I hate that. Just I'm throwing that in the yeah. air right now. I hate the title of this movie. I hate the monologue. Yeah. I hate the, the monologue. I hate I hate the title. I don't know. I just It feels very film school to me. Like so to give yourself this big monologue and now you're just chasing Amy and to then to name the movie. It's a, it's a little cheesy, but one of the only scenes with Jay and Silent Bob, I think definitely stuck out like a sore thumb. Oh, they were um, so crammed into and, the movie. Yeah, they were shoehorned in. There was no reason for them to be in that Oh, story. I hate I hated how they were in this mm, movie. Sure. No, and... I I totally agree with that. I didn't even um, remember that they were in this movie, so I was very upset <laughs> <laughs> when they I was like, again, like kind of like I was expecting this movie to be a little bit more grown up. And I didn't know this movie really had any connection to the rest of the viewers universe. Okay. My memory of it was just that it was sort of its own independent drama. Mm-hmm. And then okay. the Kevin Smithness of it <laughs> did not please me. <laughs> sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I think we're straying a little bit from what I'm trying to ask about, though, which is like. I, I don't know because I, I can see I can see the point you're making as far as it not being adequate to tell the story fully of these characters who clearly don't have a life experience that Kevin Smith directly went through. Mm-hmm. Um, but the transition from that being the case to saying it's offensive and homophobic is like a leap in judgment that I feel like we're culturally expected to make whether or not it applies. It doesn't feel like this movie is about, uh, oh my God, her name's not Amy. What is her name? Alyssa. Alyssa. Yeah, no, okay, so, no, but (laughs) that legitimately threw me off. I had totally forgotten that her name was not Amy. Right. I had to look up what her actual name was. If anything, her name should have been Amy, and then Silent Bob's girl should have been, like, Faith or or Geraldine or just something. (laughs) Chasing Geraldine. And he was like, I'm chasing Geraldine. And And then Ben Affleck's character makes a comic book called Chasing Amy, and it's about... Is you know like it's just I totally agree. With oh, that. anyway. <laughs> no, and I and I feel like anno- the the annoyingness of the title and the on the noseness of that it detracts. Right. So I feel like this movie isn't her story, whereas there are oh, people. Oh, I feel this movie is totally her story. I don't feel like it's her story. It's I I just feel like it's a con- she's just a conduit to explain lesbianism and and gayness to to people that don't really understand it. And it's but not the really whole about point. The whole culmination of the movie is her refusing to explain or apologize or justify the sexual choices that she's made and the pleasure that she's gotten from them. And she destroys a relationship where she is definitely in love. And also in the process, like and Ben Affleck's character also in the same second loses his lifelong best friend as a result of her unwillingness to explain or justify or apologize for that. All right, so I'm with you on the idea that this is a complex character, Alyssa, and that he did try to create a complex character. And I I, I don't have any problem 
with the exploration that a gay character might, you know, experience a, an attraction to someone of the opposite gender. And that that's right. And I crazy. like her. I do like her explanation in the movie. That's like I closed off, you know, all women. So then I tried women and now I'm closing off all men. And I don't want to do that either. Like, I, I like her explanation of why she wants to experiment and be mm-hmm. with guys. Like, I think that works, but. The problems with this movie, I think, are really drawn out when you watch a lot of Kevin Smith in aggregate because they're all kind of the same. And so, like, this movie does a lot of what Clerks did as well in that her sexuality is an inconvenience to him. Like, it's all framed through his point of view. When he learns that she's a lesbian, it's like, wah, wah. Today, today, a movie wouldn't have the twist being she's gay. Yeah, like that felt. That's why it didn't hold up. Like I think back then, that was a twist. Oh no, she's gay or he's gay or you know. But today, looking at that, that didn't hold up for me. That that alone would be. A yeah, plot point. I can I can totally see that. And actually, this time around, I noticed the actual scene where the realization happens is Which like is there's pretty a, funny still. there's a it's i think it's still really funny <laughs> yeah his reaction but basically. it's like a nightclub scene and she sings a song and comes down and kisses her woman that she's fooling around with currently mm-hmm. um and it's like they're like techno sirens that go off and it's like <laughs> flashing lights and he like freaks out um so i totally agree like that that moment isolated is is clunky but I don't at any point see the film doing anything but judging how narrow-minded and selfish and short-sighted Holden Ben Affleck's character is for reacting to this stuff in the way that he does. Because for someone who is bold enough in the moment and the opportunity that he sees and like reveals his feelings to Jory Lauren Adams' character... Amy, um, Alyssa. <laughs> right. Not Amy. Her character's name is not Amy. Her name should just be not Amy in the movie. It should be not, yeah, chasing not Amy. (laughs) I think there's a vulnerability to Joey Lauren Adams' character's willingness to confront the kind of complexity of her own feelings, too. I think the Ben Affleck character is more complicated than you're giving it credit for, and I think you are saying that the film is taking his side when it very decidedly does not work out in his favor. It kind of does, though. I mean, I agree that you are supposed to look at Ben Affleck's character and his point of view isn't what you're supposed to feel. He goes through a journey on here, which doesn't really age well because I just feel like culture has already gone on most of that journey and we don't need to go on it with him anymore. But both of the other main characters, like their sexuality is an inconvenience to the straight white guy at the center of the movie. I mean, I don't necessarily think this movie is homophobic per se, but because it does... <laughs> it, I think it's problematic, but not homophobic. Yeah, yeah, I would say that too. But even more than that is I think what he did in Clerks is even done more here with like the slut shaming. This guy can't deal with the fact that this woman, it's not so much her actual sexuality, what orientation she is. It's the fact that she's had, it's the fact that she's had, it's out about is that she had a three-way with two guys in high school. They're at a hockey game or something. And <laughs> this is another thing that I don't think holds up is like you hear his heartbeat as he's like realizing that she had sex with two men and it's just like this again like he's just uncomfortable with women's sexual history like well but let's be more specific here because like kevin smith was born and raised catholic it's not just sexual insecurity it's catholic guilt about sex 
Mm-hmm. You know, and again, the movie does not validate that it's showing it. Yeah, I understand the movie is showing here's a character who has extreme insecurities. She's very confident in herself. I just feel like the point of view doesn't hold up of it just being Holden's point of view and how he has changed because he met a lesbian. <laughs> Um, like, it's just, it's just kind of that, like, if this movie was kind of made today, which I don't think it could be, um, I just feel like you would, I don't know, I don't, it's, it's a, it's It's a complicated movie, it's, it's hard to pinpoint it, because there's things that I really do appreciate, and I think they were really important at the time to do, so that we could get to this point where we're over it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's, it is a hard thing. Like, it's a necessary step, and now it's a step that you don't want to look back at, and, take again at least for me it's interesting so i mean just briefly i want to bring in uh or i'm gonna bring in a special guest hi guys it's joy lauren adams <laughs> oh my god is it amy i mean not amy it's i mean Alyssa. Al- it's, what's my name Alyssa. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god She's right here, you guys. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Joey Lauren Adams. Hi, guys. God. <laughs> what, are you, what are you bringing in? <laughs> That's um, not actually I just wanted to briefly bring up um, one of the side characters whose name is uh, Hooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's played by Dwight Ewell. And he's a black gay mm-hmm. man who's friends yes, with Holden. <laughs> he is very much both of those things. Right. I like him, though. I really liked his character a lot, and I think it kind of plays on how much someone like a gay, very gay, and very unapologetically black man would scare the straight, white-bred people of the place where he lives. Yeah, I kind of liked that. I I didn't remember, like, the twist in the beginning, because he starts off being this kind of tough, like, Black Panther, Black Power kind of guy. And then it's revealed after that that he's gay. And so I didn't remember that. And then he's, like, doing that as a character. (laughs) When I saw that Black Panther scene, I was like, oh, my God, like, this does (laughs) not work. But then, you know, it, it, it does work more or less, even though it's still a little bit much, but... He could have done more of the character, but what's there doesn't really bother me. Yeah. Like, I think he's a fun character. Maybe I wish there was a little bit more in with his experience somewhere in the movie. Well, that's but. another of my problems with the movie is that, like, it does explore Alyssa's character in depth because I think he's a straight guy and lesbians are hot to lots of straight men. And he wants to go there, but he doesn't want to deal with realistic gay feelings for men and he creates a character who is supposedly gay I guess Jason Lee's character but doesn't actually want to like consider the character he's like oh he's just kind of in love with him and we don't learn anything about it I mean we know that he's obnoxious he he keeps calling Alyssa a bitch which is really jarring to hear a man referring to like many times uh, the word well, faggot is used a lot as dyke. well. Yeah, yeah, a lot. Well, but you know that emotionally he's coming from a place where he's obviously threatened. You know, and whether that's from sublimated gay desire that he's not willing to confront, or whether that's just like a territorial, familial kind of, you know, jealousy or protection or whatever. Spanky, I know why you're having such a hard time with me and Alyssa. It's something that's been obvious forever, and I guess, I guess I just didn't acknowledge it. You're in love with me. What? You're attracted to me. Just as, in a way, I guess I'm 
attracted to you. I mean, it makes sense. We've been together so long. We have so much in common. Oh, I gotta get going. I gotta catch the last few minutes of Little House. It's something you're gonna have to deal with, Bank. And that would explain your jealousy of Alyssa, your homophobia, your sense of humor. Jesus, just because a guy's got a predilection toward dick jokes. Bank, stop. Deal with it. You'll feel much better. Can you remind me what happens at the end? I remember, like, he's like, let's have a threesome. And Banky says, okay. And she's like, I'm not your fucking whore. Slaps him and leaves. What is the relationship between Banky and Holden at that point? They're just not friends anymore, right? That is the end of their friendship. That's the immediate end. Cause, and then the moment that she says that she's not going to do it, Banky says, oh, thank God. Because he didn't right. actually want to go. So that's why I was like, it. is he gay? Like, I don't understand. Oh, I, yeah. think he, I think he just didn't want to have sex with a woman. I, I think he only wanted to have sex no, with See, I don't yeah. think the character is considered enough. Kevin Smith is very much, like, most of his movies have a proxy for him in, as the main character. And that's obviously what Ben Affleck is in this movie. And it just feels like he can only see through this character's point of view and the other characters. I mean, you do get some of Alyssa's point of view, but I don't feel like he gave enough thought to Jason Lee's character and what would actually mean and feel like to be in love with your best friend. Like, it's just all posed as, like, it's an inconvenience to Holden. Everything's filtered through his eyes. You don't get and any perspective. I agree perspective. with you to the extent that because of his character and how his character reacts, it forecloses on the opportunity of, for the story to push the love triangle of it. I think it would have been a much more interesting movie if they decided to try to go through with the threesome and it went super badly or like it went super badly for Holden, for Ben Affleck's character. Like, I... I totally agree that in the hands of a non-straight screenwriter or in the hands of a different director, or even just if if a similar story would be made now, I think there are far more provocative choices and consequences to the choices of these characters that would make it have a just a wider perspective as a story. And, and also, I think, would have paid off the emotions of the characters more fully. Because I do agree with you that, that Jason Lee's Kind of sexuality is very telegraphed, but I don't think his performance embodies that. Yeah, and I, I think, think that maybe as much yeah. of a an actor note and as much of a director note as it is a writer note. Yeah, I don't. I think he's probably miscast. I mean, he's good at being a total asshole. He's a good actor in general. A, I do like him. He's a really him. good actor, and I like him in. Um, I liked him. He's in Mallrats, right? I think so. Yeah, like my name is in, Earl. He he's really in, good. He was in Mallrats. Like, I really like him. I just... This is what I felt like was missing was, like, after she leaves and is like, I'm not your fucking whore and leaves, where's Banky's monologue about how he feels and if he really is gay or maybe he's not. Maybe he was confused. Like, I just felt like there was something missing that I shouldn't leave that movie not knowing, like, wait, is he really gay or was he just trying to, like, help his friendship with his friend yeah, or so are they happens. not friends because he is gay or so are they not friends because... immediately after that scene is that it cuts to a year later and they're at a comic book convention. Holden has signed over the rights to the comic book franchise to Banky. So it's like Banky's comic book franchise now. So Holden makes the Chasing Amy comic. And then Alyssa has her own like new thing that she's premiering at that Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. But I, I also agree with you. That was a missed opportunity to have his character get real resolution. At the same time, his character is completely defined by him running away from his true self. 
in a lot of ways. Because, I mean, like, his role on that comic was really to be an inker, and everyone keeps calling him a tracer. Mm-hmm. Like, that's all he's doing is tracing Casey lines. Affleck. Yeah, <laughs> it's young Casey call Affleck. Him a tracer. As of this movie, we needed an extra dose of misogyny. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I would agree with you that it kind of shortchanges Banky and doesn't give him a satisfying resolution. I mean, it shows the dissolution of their relationship in the sense that that's kind of the story of the movie is their relationship is at the moment where it is falling apart. But I do think it could have been more kind of revelatory and emotionally satisfying. And I feel like it's because Kevin Smith isn't comfortable with gay male sexuality. He's perfectly willing to explore it in a female character because, again... So his, his older brother is gay. You know, so it's not like he doesn't know gay people and it's not like he has a problem with, like... Have but- you ever seen Clerks 2? Yes. Okay, because I watched that as well. And that has a lot of gay panic in it. And that was part of Clerks, and it kind of worked in Clerks. I believe that from the characters, but Clerks, too, just takes it to another level of there's so much, like, I'm not gay kind of humor and mistaking people for gay that is an unfortunate part of the 90s that it was just a step from gay people basically just not being represented to what we have now, which is that they're fairly well represented. Again, I do not agree with the idea that queerness is at all thoroughly represented in, especially in American pop culture. I'm not saying that it's it's, at the peak that it'll ever be, but it's gotten progressively better. It's out there now. I mean, you can find gay entertainment now and fairly, like you can find gay characters in more on TV than in movies. Yeah. Like, so much more on TV than in movies. Right. Well, that's what we're saying, that there's more stories being told from a gay point of view And so, than yeah, I do think that this, like, the gay panic just doesn't age well now. Like, we've talked about it, I think, in Friends a little bit, is that those scenes just don't play anymore. And they played fine at the time. And I think yeah, this I all played fine at the time, too. I but. didn't rewatch Clerks 2 for this. Um, but the last time, like, I saw Clerks 2 in theaters when it came out and mm-hmm. enjoyed it some. You know, like, it's, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's, like, a fantastic movie. Yeah. You know, and I do agree that, like, the the donkey show stuff and. Yeah, so, yeah, at moments, the end of like, that movie, uh, just for those who haven't seen it, um, <laughs> the climax of the movie is basically uh, they think that they're hiring a woman who's going to fuck a donkey and they actually hire a gay man who's going to fuck a donkey. And it's all just like all the characters of the movie watching it. And that's like the climax of the movie. And it goes on a really long time. (laughs) And the guy is like all dressed in leather. And it's, it's, it's really like making fun of a gay man basically. And it's making like the donkey show is not like a gay specific joke though but it is and i mean in the way it's presented it's like the 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 point of the scene is like oh it was going to be hot when it's a woman but now it's disgusting and gross because it's a man that we're watching and like whatever i mean it's it plays it's funny in the movie like well I, and then i because i remember it like it kind of pays off with you learning that he has like a really loving relationship <laughs> with his donkey like it's not <laughs> like it's <laughs> well, yes, uh, an illegal. Very loving. <laughs> loving I feel like I feel like we don't know Kevin Smith personally, but through his movies, what we see, he means well. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm trying to say is, doesn't that, mean like, he, it's great. Yeah, <laughs> just but that, it means well. If we are just looking at Chasing Amy and there were no other Kevin Smith movies, I think you could make certain arguments that maybe he did consider these characters more. 
But when you have like Clerks and Clerks 2 and I think everything I've ever seen of his has gay panic in it. That He's obviously like not... Or... But let's pause there for a second because you're using this term gay panic. Right. The term gay panic was invoked as a defense in the murder trial of the guy who killed Harvey Milk. So when you say gay panic, that's implying that like there's literal violence that's happened against a gay person. You know, and like... It's been... It's... In pop culture, it's just that characters don't want to be thought of as gay. That's uh, that's the context that I'm that I thought that's you were. The, yeah, I know, but it's like I'm not trying to make a point about you individually. I'm trying to make a point about our culture and specifically our media culture and the vocabulary that we use to describe the representation of non-heteronormative or non-straight characters and relationships is that there's often a leap to identifying things as problematic just because they don't fit within the still relatively conservative parameters of our sexual vocabulary in America. Even non-monogamous relationships don't really have great representation either in the queer spectrum or the straight spectrum. So I want to talk about one scene that I really, really like and I think holds up the most for me, is the scene in the car where Holden reveals his love for Alyssa. And the monologue. The giant monologue mm-hmm. in a movie full of monologues. Kevin Smith movie monologues? I think they're all, it's one long monologue <laughs> that he's been telling for the past 35 years. One big old log. And uh, I remember when I was 14, 15, in love with my best friend who was gay. Hi, Justin. I had this <laughs> monologue printed out, and I would, like, cry reading it, and I would cry during the scene, and I still feel like it's so it's such a beautiful, well-written moment. And I love how she storms out of the car. And I love how her reaction. And she's like, I'm gay. Runs Do it away. In the Joey Lauren Adams voice. <laughs> I'm gay. That's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember for one fucking second who I am? So, I mean. You know, people change. Oh, oh, it's that simple. You fall in love with me and want a romantic relationship, nothing changes for you. With the exception of feeling hunky-dory all the time, but what about me, Holden? It's not that simple. I just can't get into a relationship with you without throwing my whole fucking world into upheaval. Listen, that's every relationship. There's always going to be a period of adjustment. Period of adjustment? There's no period of adjustment, Holden! Gay. That's who I am. Fuck you, Holden. I'm not doing mine. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> um, and then you know he goes away sad, and then she runs back into the frame and goes like, ah, and like they like embrace and kiss. <laughs> what, what, what does she go like? She I watched it twice, noise. and she's Becky's really spot on. She makes that. a noise, she um, does. and I just I really love that scene. I think it's a great scene. Still, it's the best scene in the movie for me. I I agree. And I think that was the one where the dialogue stood out most to me. Um, Because it is really where both of those characters are tested the most and go the furthest out of their own comfort zones. For me, the best scene was the reaction of Alyssa's friends. Oh. (laughs) Mainly because that scene actually felt true and it was one of the only scenes that really considers what it would mean to like spontaneously change your sexuality in terms of at least like how other people perceive you and to me that was the best Kevin Smith getting away from his Kevin Smithness 
and being able to, I mean, it might be the only scene that she's in and he's not in, which I think is kind of crucial. Mm-hmm. I think her character is good enough that he could have made a movie that's just about her. And I wish that he didn't have the inclination to insert a Kevin Smith into this movie and have him ultimately get the girl and, and she drops everything and changes her entire way of life to be with this guy. I feel like that is in him somewhere, that he's considered this character enough to write her pretty well, but ultimately the fact that Kevin Smith has a Kevin Smith in the movie voicing his opinions on these things, like, really and drags it down. And chooses him as the ref- the inflection point off of which everything else in the universe is career. Yeah. As, as much as we've disagreed on in this episode, I, I actually do agree heavily on that, because Alyssa is by far the most interesting part of this story, and I think the truest character in the sense that she's the most honest about all the conflicts that she's going through and is by far the most self-aware. And I do think it holds the storytelling back. And even the characterization of Holden, of Ben Affleck's character, I think is limited by the fact that the movie's centered around him and not around her. Yeah, I mean, as far as I can tell, like, Kevin Smith can't not put himself in the movie literally in most cases as (laughs) Silent Bob, but also, you know, characters like Dante and Holden. Like, I feel like there's a movie with Alyssa falling in love with some guy who's nothing like Kevin Smith that could be a great movie, Mm -hmm. but you just can't not have that be a comic book schlub. As a screenwriter, I've written scripts where there's definitely things that I'm going through or emotions I'm feeling, and I put that into my lead characters, but not every single character right, is a <laughs> girl living in Los Angeles who's a screenwriter who, like, you know, is the I really the exact... love the silent Becky character. <laughs> <laughs> of course, everything that you write is going to have your point of view in it. It can't not have your point of view in it, but you don't have to <laughs> do it quite this literally and have a character who is basically exactly you <laughs> styled, in every single styled, movie. Styled, like, with the same goatee beard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it just, it kind of, Kevin Smith, I think, is, like, a, a probably a decent guy, but there's nothing remarkable about this character that he keeps putting in these movies. It is a unambitious, straight white guy, and that's... Fine, you know, and and it works individually in these movies, but in aggregate, I feel like these movies just get, like, weighted down with that, like, straight white male perspective that just gets a little tiresome after a while. And speaking of getting a little tiresome after a while, let's talk about the characters of Jay and Silent Bob, who are (laughs) the most consistently recurring (laughs) elements of the Askewniverse. I like Jason Mewes because I think he commits to the role the limited role of Jay. <laughs> the, the, it's basically one joke over and over and over and over again. Yeah, it's the same joke over and over. And it, like, it, I can't, what is so interesting about these two people that they keep reappearing in, like, every one of his movies and then they get their own movies? Like, what is so interesting? Like, I don't get it. So, what's up? You have a friend for Silent Bob or you can just do us both? If so, I'm first. I hate sloppy seconds. So you do anal? Is it true that chicks fart if you blast them in the ass? I didn't ask you out for sex. I'll take it. Lady, look at me. I don't even know where the hell I am half the time. Well, so, I, I mean, we've hit on some of Kevin Smith's other movies, and I, I still enjoy Dogma quite a bit, and I liked Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back okay when it came out. Like, in Dogma, they're at least given something to do that kind of helps really move the plot along and actually fits in the story that they're telling. I I can't answer your question, 
Well, I mean, I think that's the thing about Kevin Smith is that he's just not really able to get outside of his own kind of world and perspective. And he's casting, you know, his daughter and wife and friends in these movies. And he's okay, but there isn't really anything that interesting about him. And, and, and it works okay in like a Clerks kind of movie, but when you do it like 15 times, you need to move on a little bit and make a movie about something else besides I mean, he, yourself. He well, has. I'm, sh- I'm sure part of it, Chris, is that like f- in your particular experience is watching all of these back to back to back to back to back. Mm-hmm. I don't think that helps. <laughs> that definitely does not help. Um, but also I do think kind of, in light of the passage of time, it's clearly a note that he's played too many times. Yeah, Jay and Silent Bob are just, I think, the epitome of a joke that you just like keep telling and telling and it gets less and less funny every single time. I do like Jay and Silent Bob as characters and if they had stayed in like a couple of movies and not had their own movie, you know, like I think their dogma was my introduction to Kevin Smith and of course these characters. And I think they, like Seth said, really work in that movie and like that movie in general he actually casts people who could act in it which is a crucial step up i mean clerks has pretty amateur performances chasing amy has pretty good ish performances although we've talked about some of the casting maybe not being the best and then i think dogma he actually works with real actors and and comedians who are not just doing kevin smith style humor, but like there's Chris Rock and they're doing Chris Rock. That feels fresh and that that still works. Isn't it so crazy how many celebrities are in Dogma? Yes. So many celebrities. At that point, he must have been like at his peak with just those first three movies, Clerks, Mallrats, and Chasing Amy, because the next movie had like a bigger budget and Chris Rock, Alan Rickman, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, like what what year did Dogma come out? 99. So this, this was after Good Will Hunting. So they were like Big stars. Yeah, and it's really fun to see Matt and Ben playing. Like, they make a joke that they're a gay couple, but just that that capitalizes on what people kind of were actually saying about them. It's just fun to see them back in this era. So this was the same year as uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley for (laughs) Matt and this was uh, Ben Affleck's Forces of Nature era. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, it's interesting how their careers have kind of ebbed and flowed differently at at different times. (laughs) Because Matt was definitely the more respectable. And flowed and flowed. Yeah. (laughs) And ebbed a lot. (laughs) And I really, I think Selma Hayek's like really funny in this movie. I love when she says she was responsible for 19 of the 20 biggest box office movies. So guys, what do you think is the worst Kevin Smith movie and which one is your favorite? Well, I mean, I would say that my favorites are probably Clerks and Dogma. Like we said earlier, I still think Clerks as rough around the edges, as shoddy in some ways as it is, really connects to a specific feeling and really is very close to the characters that it's representing. So I feel like it's it's the one that kind of feels the truest in being like directly ripped from life. I think Dogma is the one that that really puts the finest point on Kevin Smith's kind of Catholic upbringing and the guilt that comes along with that and trying to confront what it means to be religious versus what it means to be spiritual and to take care of and love the people around you. I definitely think both do not hold up perfectly, but as far as his movies go, I think those are his best. And I definitely would say his worst is Yoga Hosers. And <laughs> so you actually saw that one? Oh, I... And that's the one that it has... How much is Johnny Depp in that movie? 
He's in a large part of like one act of it. It's okay. not it's not as much as you would think. He has like one scene in Tusk and then he had more scenes in this. That's nuts cuz like Johnny Depp is pretty much the most bankable star out there right oh, now. Oh, and he's unrecognizable in Tusk and I think he plays the same character in Yoga. Yeah, he plays a Canadian uh an inspector named Guy Lapointe. I guess that's what you get when you cast Johnny Depp's daughter is you get her begging her dad to be in the movie. Well, so they're like their neighbors and their kids went to school together. So that's how they like their like families are. Okay, that makes sense. He's such a mediocre filmmaker that has worked with so many famous people. (sighs) And yeah, I, I think Dogma was really at the height of and that's why he got the cast that he did. Like everyone wanted to work with Kevin Smith then. And I think a movie or two after that, the spell started wearing off for, I would say, most people. I, I don't know that any other filmmaker's work has aged so poorly. And just like, it feels like the more movies he makes, the more he weakens his brand overall. Just because I think like when you have Clerks and Chasing Amy and Dogma, it's, it's okay. But the fact that he kept making so many of these movies with many of the same characters and just inserting himself into it just really grows tiresome, I think, for me. And I'm just, it would take a lot for me to really want to watch another Kevin Smith movie right now because I'm just, I got it. Like, every, <laughs> everything you put out there, I've got. Did you see Red, Red State or Tusk? I saw Red State um, back when it came out and I did more or less like that movie. I didn't, it's not great, but it has, it's certainly interesting. And it was, I appreciated that he was trying to do something else. But I know that he's also like tried to put like Clerks 2 in the work or Clerks 3 in the works and Mallrats 2. And it's just like, I want him to stop going back to that well. And I, I think he just needs to stop. <laughs> Becky, did you see Tusk? Yes, I saw Tusk. I uh, just streamed it one day. I had nothing to do. And I was like, well, I like horror movies and this is supposed to be gross. So let's watch it. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised. I thought some of it really didn't work, but I finished it. And that's saying a lot because I'll give your movie 10 minutes and then I'll give up if I'm not entertained. This is true. Yeah, so I, uh, Justin Long as a walrus will be forever haunting my nightmares. And I think that says a lot, that it's yeah. memorable. I think it's a good pulpy horror movie. Yeah, I definitely see Tusk and Yoga Hosers and Red State as being, on his part, a very, very intentional departure from the whole idea of the ISK universe, even, just conceptually. And he's talked a lot in interviews and podcasts about how he just very intentionally wanted to break from it. So he has tried to put together more dips back to ye old well. It's dry, Kevin. It's dry. <laughs> it's so dry. Yeah, baby Jessica may be down there, but that's about it. <laughs> His attempts to kind of resuscitate those franchises have fallen through. Chris, would you be willing to see, like, another movie of his if you knew that it was a total, complete departure, like, if Red State or Tusk? If I knew that it was a good movie. I mean, Tusk isn't something that really appeals to me that much. I Fair maybe enough. would watch it, but it just doesn't, not really my thing from what I gather. And Red State wasn't a great movie, and Yoga Hosers is supposedly terrible, so... He would need to have a Kevin Renaissance. I know, Kev Renaissance. Yeah, I I almost went there and then I was like, it's not going to come out. Wait, so what is is your favorite and which one do you think is the worst? Uh, My favorite is Dogma for sure. I I think it it has all of the humor that Kevin Smith always has. It has much less of the problematic stuff and it just, it has stakes. It has a plot. 
And I, th- I think it shows some growth for him. Chasing Amy and Clerks and a lot of his other movies, uh, Clerks 2, end up with the hot woman dropping everything in her life to get with the schlubby guy who isn't so special. And in this movie, the main character is a woman. She ends up alone and pregnant and not with, you know, some <laughs> silent Bob <laughs> or whoever. And God is a woman in that movie and Alanis Morissette. Mm-hmm. And even Selma Hayek, she's like a stripper, but also a muse. And that's kind of interesting. So I, I think that shows a lot of progress for him, like in how he depicts women. I don't find that movie has very many problems in the way that the other ones do. And I agree with Seth that like something about Clerks holds up because I think a lot of what he does actually plays better when it looks cheap. And (laughs) you can tell that he's not trying that hard to make it look great. Like, I like Dogma, but it's not a great looking movie. It's not a great directed movie. And you can tell that there's a bit more of a budget there. And it almost feels kind of awkward because it just doesn't feel like Kevin Smith really can operate it like like you can imagine a version of dogma that's like seriously epic and like really visual like this it, it's not that movie. I mean I think part of that was budgetarian also where effects were at the time. Yeah. It's but, with a but also filmmaker who's not very good versus somebody who would be a great filmmaker working with a limited budget to create something sure. more visually Sure, like Guillermo del Toro would make a very different <laughs> yes. dogma. <laughs> I want to see Guillermo del Toro's a very different dogma. <laughs> A very different dogma. And for worse, I honestly, I think I have to say Chasing Amy just because... Wow. I know. I do think it was a good movie at the time. And I just think that there's so many problems with it now and that all of the things that really irk me about Kevin Smith that I can kind of ignore in some of the movies are just like dialed up to 11 in this movie. It's like really, really in your face. Like Jason Lee's calling her a bitch, a dyke, like over and over again. The word like fag is used all the time. And it's like, you can do that a little bit, but this movie just, it's just off-putting to me now because all of those words have become less acceptable in the past 20 years. So that movie just, I recognize good things about it, but I feel like the better version of the movie would have been him falling in love with a lesbian and her just continuing to be herself and continuing to be a lesbian. Like a straight guy having to learn to set aside wanting the hot girl to fuck him and just being friends. I think that would have been a really interesting movie. Or even like them finding that his friendship is kind of irreconcilable because she doesn't return his feelings in the right, same way. Yeah, you can tell that Kevin Smith is judging himself in that movie to an extent, but it's a very easy judgment. It's kind of like, this is not the best attitude, but the story of it doesn't actually make the character work very hard. Like she falls in his lap basically, and it, it's very easy. And it's not easy for her, and you can see that it's not easy for her, but he's just kind of like a dude who gets everything that he wants, and that kind of happens at the end of all of Kevin Smith's movies for the most part, or at least the ones that we've talked about today. So I had a very different opinion. I hate dogma (laughs) so much. (laughs) I am profoundly bored watching that movie. I am not a religious person. A lot of the terminology kind of went over my head, or was just I wasn't familiar with it, but I was just so bored. A lot of the jokes are very specific to kind of Christian terminology and like the way that the Christian faith is structured. So I totally get that. I was like, this movie yeah. is not for me. And and I was just like, feel like the dialogue in this movie is something a kid just grappling with his own religious doubt or, you know, experiences would write. But like a kid. I agree with that. It, it feels juvenile. But I think all of this 
I mean, there's a shit monster in that movie. I could, I have a note that says I could do without the shit monster. That's the one scene that I'm like, yeah, I don't, I didn't need that. But I mean, I like that Alanis looks pretty and she's God. Um, (laughs) But, but I was just like waiting for the movie to be over. I was like, oh God, I hate this movie. Um, I will always have a soft spot in my heart for chasing Amy for those particular scenes that I like and that how much it meant to me when I was younger but I'm not going to run out, you know, buy it on DVD and have it in my library. It's not going to hold up for me. So I would say Clerks is probably the one that holds up the best for me, which is funny because it's his first, but there's so much promise there. <laughs> and we're still waiting for him to deliver. <laughs> and on he it. really did influence a lot of filmmakers and young people to to write, you know, about their own experiences. They don't you don't have to write about sweeping epics to be a filmmaker. You can write about the world around you mm-hmm. and go out and film it. And I really appreciate that. And I feel like some of the funniest lines of dialogue he's ever written are is in Clerks. So I would say Clerks holds up the best. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess my overall takeaway with Kevin Smith is that he was ahead of his time and now is a little bit behind the times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of coming up at a time when, like, machismo and masculinity was a really big... Like, that's there were a lot of buddy movies and Schwarzenegger, Stallone, like, those kinds of action heroes. So he posed, like, what if the fat schlubby comic book nerd was a hero and at the time that was cool and then everyone kind of jumped on that bandwagon because most writers are (laughs) that (laughs) Kevin Smith so and then that has really taken over the culture so much now that I mean there's I think Apatow and a lot of that kind of humor like that's kind of the dominant brand of comedy I feel like is centering on lazy straight white men who don't have a lot going on and aren't that attractive. And the humor is more R-rated and, yeah. you know, they're they're a f- towing the line of being offensive. Um, that's definitely, and nerd culture is huge now. Well, yeah. and uh, another thing that happened in the 90s, like, industry-wide is that there was the all the media consolidation that set the stage for the way that movies are financed and made now is that in the 90s, all of the corporations that make entertainment started to buy each other up and get swallowed up by larger and larger companies. So all even all of these kind of, quote-unquote, indie uh, movie houses are mostly shingles of larger studios now. So it became much more of a scenario where everything that had made some money, you started to see, uh, you know, repeats of it and regurgitations of the same kind of old premise. And I, I do think it's been... A very ironic phenomenon that, like, what you're talking about, Chris, where, like, nerd culture is such a, it's a thing that so predominates pop culture that it's almost like any idea that a nerd was ever, like, an outcast or not a cool person is weird and strange and foreign now. Yeah, exactly. But, like, at this time, like, comic books were nerdy, and now... They're yeah, just the look biggest at the, movies of the year. Just look at the comic book convention at the beginning of Chasing Amy, and it's like a few stragglers. Yeah, exactly. You know, I thought really that was strange. so funny that it's comic... I mean, it's not San Diego Comic-Con, it's New York, but still the yeah. Comic-Con is still, like that the idea janky. that a Comic-Con is like having a light day. There's actually comics <laughs> yeah. at it. That's <laughs> right. a, a novelty. <laughs> and I also think like part of like the success of Marvel movies is also due to what Kevin Smith wrought mm-hmm. and that he... That he he said, this is cool. Like, this, these people can be heroes. And even though the Marvel movies are about actual heroes, is I, I feel like the fact that nerd culture became such a predominant force It's celebrated in our culture, now. And yeah. they want that 
audience. They want the nerdy audience and they're no longer outcasts. Yeah, it's weird. Exactly. It's weird if you don't like I mean, I'm not a huge Marvel fan and I feel like I'm in the minority. Most people are like lining now up to go nerd. see. <laughs> you're that nerd who likes cool things. <laughs> no, I feel myself very much in the same place where I'm almost kind of actively turned off whenever I hear that, oh, it's another month. So here's another massive fucking Marvel movie and almost nothing else getting made or released because it hasn't already made $200 million worldwide. Thanks, Kevin and, Smith. And I think it's so ironic. <laughs> Somehow we're tying this it's to all you. all Kevin, Kevin Smith. Smith's fault. Well, I think it's ironic that, that his movies make almost no money, especially like his last few movies have made like a couple of million dollars. But like the brand that he's kind of created in comedy and then also all the comic books, he has a lot of successful endeavors in you know, podcasts and, and his comic book store, but that his movies actually don't make anywhere near Marvel money. And Well, and I mean, the idea of like a, an Apatow level box office success is is part of the reason why he cast Seth Rogen and Zack and Mary make a porno. But it's like, you're, you're very right that like, he's not of that generation where a hard R movie would make a hundred million dollars at the box office. Yeah, I think he kind of created that, but then kind of missed out on yeah. totally being able to capitalize on it. Like even yeah, when he put Seth Rogen true. in one of his movies, that wasn't really a hit either. Yeah. And as an aside, <laughs> apparently, he didn't ever smoke pot until meeting Seth Rogen meeting Seth Rogen and I thought yeah. that was funny because a lot of people would say that his comedy it feels kind of like stoner comedy it's not exactly but it definitely has that edge to it and yet I, apparently that was not his actual inspiration <laughs> I don't know how you be a convenience store in Jersey and not get high but so yeah I mean I feel like it's odd that Kevin Smith he doesn't have a web series, does he? Or he's no. never done that. That feels like the perfect medium for him. It's cheap. It doesn't really have to look that good. It can, Most of those things are just very talky and not a lot of action or locations. And that's like totally what he wants to do is I feel like he basically invented the web series before <laughs> there was an internet. And so mm -hmm. I'm done with him in movies. <laughs> kind of like I just don't think... He has nothing to really give you that you haven't seen before. Yeah, and or... if he does, like, great, bring it, but so far, no. Yeah. And and so I just, I feel like that's the perfect place for, like, he has a loyal but fairly small fan base now, and that's, like, the perfect place for him. And, and something like Clerks or really anything that he's done would work really well in a shorter format. And in a, like, it, they just don't need to be movies. There's nothing really about his filmmaking that, actually asks to be a movie like these things i mean would feel better on the internet just because that's more where you can get away with being a little shaggier and not not quite so polished and that that like none of his movies are particularly polished or visually striking yeah so i don't know why he isn't and he, he's not doing very well at the box office so i don't know why he's not doing that i think that i've heard that he like said he was going to retire like a couple of times and then it's like he keeps getting pulled back in well so he jason Mewes keeps calling him and he's <laughs> like i'm bored i'm not in any other movies no, he, he thought he was done making movies for a while he didn't retire multiple times he thought he was done making movies for a while and then he got the idea for red state and then he got the idea for doing clerks again as a series and then also was working on a, a canadian hockey series called Hit Somebody that's based on a Warren Zevon song and that was initially going to be a movie then it was going to be a miniseries and then I think it totally fell through 
So he's tried to develop TV series projects. They just haven't gone through yet. Mm-hmm. There was a Clerks cartoon for a little bit. Right. And by little a, bit, I mean a very little bit. It was episodes. six episodes canceled after two. Yeah, we watched a little of that. I found that one actually more painful than this. <laughs> I like Clerks, but the cartoon did not have so much do it for me. Here and that's today. all the shagginess and pain we have time for. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed our romp, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us your five-star reviews, along with any cookie recipes you may enjoy. Yes, please. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash show. You can tweet us at show, And you can also email us at gmail at www.yshow at gmail.com if you have suggestions for future episodes of the show. And finally, if you would like to help us defray the cost of producing a show we bring to you entirely for free, you can contribute to us at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash when we were young. On our next episode, we will tackle the 90s comedy classic, My Best Friend's Wedding. Because it's wedding season. Yeah, and Muriel's wedding, too. (laughs) So much weddings, more weddings than you can handle. So much weddings. (laughs) But for now, I am Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. Today. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Not even supposed to be here today. And I'm Chris. (laughs) Only some white boy gotta invoke the Holy Trilogy. Bust this. Those movies are about how the white man keeps the brother man down, even in a galaxy far, far away. Check this shit. You got Cracker Farm Boy, Luke Skywalker, Nazi poster boy, blonde hair, blue eyes. And then you got Darth Vader. The blackest brother in the galaxy, Nubian God. What's a Nubian? Shut the fuck up.